0: Joseph and Carol will be leading this retreat together. I'd like to welcome all of the people who've just come and say hello again to the people who've been here. (laughs) It's nice to see you again. I want to speak just a little bit tonight in trying to establish a context for the practice that we'll be doing here together. The meditation practice that we do originated with the teachings of the Buddha about 2,500 years ago in India. And one of the things that has always excited me personally about this practice is that in all of these descriptions of the Buddha, he figures as a human being and not as some kind of divine being. It said that he discovered the things that he later taught through the power of his own awareness. That it wasn't a question of some kind of divine revelation, but it was really through cultivating the power of his own mind that he could access the depth of truth that he touched and then relayed. As a human being, the questions that he asked about life were questions that are very relevant To humans, to our own lives. He has questions like What does it mean that we're born into this body as a baby, a helpless infant, completely dependent upon others? And then we grow up, we grow older, we experience disease old age, and finally death. What does it mean to be alive in a body that is outside of our control? What does it mean, he asked, to have a mind that is a torrent of changing feelings and emotions and thoughts and images and reflections? Just a cascade of experiences going on all of the time, also outside of our control. most fundamentally he asked where does one find happiness that is not diluted? Where does one find a true happiness in the midst of this constant change, realizing the true nature of the body and the mind? Where do we come to joy? How do we come to peace? And what he offered as a teaching were these very basic questions and the things that he had seen through the power of his own mind. The implication is that every single one of us as human beings has a similar potential for discovery that our minds really are very powerful if we learn how to cultivate looking, if we learn how to cultivate seeing and awareness that we too can find some of the answers to our very important questions through learning how to watch. The teachings of the Buddha can be described almost as a kind of ethical psychology where the two poles rather than being good and bad or right and wrong or good and evil are seen as elements of experience which are skillful and other elements which are unskillful. Those which are skillful are those ways of being that we have that lead to awareness, that lead to wholeness, that lead to a sense of peace, to harmony, lead to understanding and freedom. And those elements of our being that are unskillful are those qualities, those habits, those ways of being that lead to harming ourselves or harming others, that lead to somehow diminishing ourselves, not living up to this true potential of ours. They lead to suffering. Underlying this is an understanding that there's a natural order to our universe. Things may be outside of our control, but they're not meaningless. It's not a haphazard or random universe, either within ourselves or external to ourselves. Just as when we look at the natural life, we see laws such as the law of gravity, which although not completely understood, even somewhat understood, portrays how much of our world can work. And understanding that law is not oppressive, it's not a burden, it's not something that restricts us in any way. It is actually through our even incomplete understanding of that law of gravity that we have learned how to fly. In just that same way, there are laws that govern this body, govern the mind. There are natural events in this universe. They're not isolated. They're not peculiar. They're part of a greater whole. And if we understand the laws that govern our minds and bodies, we understand our relationship to the world, in effect, we can learn how to fly. We can learn how to play on the very edge of what is possible for us, because we understand. Without this kind of understanding, we tend to feel like a victim of circumstance. As we go through all of the ups and downs and changes of a day or a week or a lifetime, if we don't have a sense of understanding, then it is is quite difficult to have a clear sense of confidence about things. It's easy, without understanding, to have a very uncritical faith, something that feels inspiring to us, or we're moved in some way by it, and because we're not centered with our own sense of what is true, it's very easy to get swayed. The problem with that, of course, is that we get swayed again and again and again as various things and various ideas and various people move us. The opposite of that is a continual sense of fear. Because we don't understand what's going on. There's that uneasiness, there's that fear that is very diffuse but very strongly present. It's likened to walking into a room that is dark. Because it is dark, we don't know what's in there. We don't know when we may stumble, we may fall. We don't know when we're going to face some obstacle. If we can simply turn on the light, then we will see. We can move with confidence based on our clear seeing. We may still have obstacles that we have to crawl under or climb over or whatever, but we do it with that sense of being able to trust ourselves and our vision. The practice of meditation that we do clears away the veils that do obscure our vision, that create this kind of darkness, so that we can see for ourselves the laws that govern our lives. We can understand them for ourselves and we can live in a skillful way. The path that the Buddha talked about is called the Eightfold Path it's divided into three sections. The first of these has to do with how we relate to others, primarily how we regard ourselves in this world and as an extension of that, how we relate to others, how we relate to the environment and relate to the world. One of the very moving things for me about the Buddha and what he really symbolizes for me more than anything else, was a sense of him as being a very integrated being. You know how for most of us our lives are at least somewhat if not very much fragmented or compartmentalized. We may feel very together and loving, and compassionate, and wise when we're all alone. But when we're with others, then it's very difficult. Or we may feel very together when we're with others, but we can't bear to be alone. Or we may feel quite wise and compassionate when we're dealing with family, but we have a very difficult time with job or career, or the other way around. Our lives tend to be split up into these little pieces, whereas really life is not like that. Life is all of one piece. It's all woven together. It's integrated. The Buddha is a wonderful symbol of a being who is integrated, who was the same being with the same threads of awareness and compassion and commitment, whether he was alone or he was teaching no matter where he was no matter who he was with however noble of birth however poor it didn't matter he was so complete in who he was that it didn't waver according to circumstance a very large part of that is a commitment to morality or to having a sense of ethics in one's life seeing that The worst mistake we can make on a spiritual journey is to assume that we don't have to pay attention to how we treat other people, the things we say, the actions that we do, because we are so concerned with great transcendent experiences. We have a teacher that we brought here once to this country, and when we brought him, from India, we were very proud of the American spiritual scene as people were getting more and more interested in meditation and the teachings of the Buddha and really establishing a lot of different places to practice and so on. After taking him around to a lot of these places, we asked him what he thought about what he'd seen and he said well yes you know it's really wonderful it's very exciting what's happening here but there's one thing that strikes me as being somewhat strange he said that spiritual practitioners in America reminded him somewhat of people who were sitting in a boat and they were rowing with great energy and sincere effort and a lot of diligence but they just absolutely refused to untie the boat from the dock (laughs) it it was a little bit he said I think about that when I see how people relate to some of the basic moral issues you know that we do want these great transcendent experiences we want to uncover the mysteries of our lives and birth and death and change and it takes a lot of patience and a lot of humility to pay attention to how we live in this world how we move through a day whether we're being motivated by compassion or by rather old and painful conditioning so the path really begins with having an understanding of kindness and caring in one's relationship to others in the world around. That is the absolute foundation. To try to deeply uncover the nature of things without this foundation is not really possible. And so no matter what we have done before walking in this door, once we come in, we make a certain kind of commitment and that will create a foundation. Otherwise, it's likened to an artist who's trying to paint a picture without a canvas. If you can imagine somebody here just standing in the middle of the room, just kind of splashing paint around in the air, there's nowhere to hold it. So we create the canvas and that is the commitment through our bodies and through our speech, through our minds towards care, towards harmony. For the time that we are here, we take certain precepts. They're all designed to simplify and intensify our lives here and reflect this basic principle of not harming. Recognizing that our actions have power, that our speech has power. It's not just something we do or say that then disappears. It's very powerful. These five precepts that we undertake while we are here are first the precept not to kill, which means any living being, however small, however disliked. To use this time in a way to develop a reverence for life. We take a precept not to steal or more literally not to take that which has not been offered, that which has not been given. Which also means to develop a sense of contentment, of basic all rightness with what is offered. In some way to focus more on what we have than on what we don't have and wish we did and so a sense of gratitude as well. We take a precept to maintain celibacy for the time that we are here, not to engage in any kind of sexual activity and to use the time in a very alone way and powerfully dedicated to this exploration. We take a precept not to lie when we are here to seek the truth in all dimensions, and all aspects, and we extend this towards a commitment to silence. We spend so much of our lives performing, either being in a social role or comparing ourselves to others, that this is a time when, for once, we can just be quiet and come within, learn to trust our own experience. And finally, we take a precept to refrain from taking any kind of intoxicants, no alcohol, no drugs, and to use the natural purity and power of the mind in this discovery. Realizing that nothing is apart from a spiritual sense of ourselves, kind of weave our lives into integrity, into wholeness. This is the foundation. And having done this, having made this commitment, once we come here, the next aspect of the path that we develop is called Bhavana, which is usually translated as meditation, it's a Pali word, Pali being the language that was spoken in the time of the Buddha more literally bhavana means to bring something forth to cultivate it it's like giving birth to something to make it manifest what we bring forth to begin with what we develop is concentration as most of you if not all of you doubtless already know our minds tend to be incredibly scattered you give the mind a simple task just to focus on one thing at one time and it does that for two seconds then ah, it's off and running over and over and over again it goes to the past it goes to the future it gets lost in dream world lost in fantasies what we do in the practice is we take all of this energy which is scattered all over the place and we gather it in. And from this gathering motion, this movement, the mind becomes unified. It becomes collected and becomes composed. We just keep gathering it in. It's like we shepherd the mind back to the place that is our object of concentration. And we bring it into balance. If the tendency of our minds is to be very dull and insensitive, then we work to wake up, to awaken, to pay full attention. If the tendency of our minds is to be very wired and tense and tight, then we relax. We learn to let go, to be at ease with what is going on. This tremendous power in being able to concentrate the mind. It's just like concentrating anything in the natural world. We can take the light in this room and it will reveal a certain thing, it'll have a certain strength. If we concentrate it to the point of being a laser, it can cut through steel concentration is the cutting edge of our practice is what brings the intensity it's what reveals to us that which is hidden so this is our first effort is to be able to concentrate the mind it takes a very certain kind of effort to be able to do this it takes personal effort it's not that someone else is going to do it for us but it takes really appropriate effort. Many of you have heard me tell the story about the first day that we came to look at the center and we're trying to decide whether it would be an appropriate place to have a retreat center. We had just been back in this country teaching for a couple of years and so when a friend brought us here, that first day, we were very unsure about whether it was the wise thing to do, to, to have people buy it, because it seemed so big. You know, we had just been back a few years and we weren't sure how many people would be interested enough in practicing the meditation, that they'd make a commitment like this, you know, to come for so many days. And we didn't know if we'd ever be able to fill it. And We're just kind of wandering around thinking, you know, what should we do? It seems so ideal in so many ways, and and yet it was really scary. So, to be able to think in a clearer fashion, we went to downtown Barry to the pizzeria. (laughs) (laughs) And on our way there, we walked through the common, and there was at that time a monument in the common which had the Barry Town motto on it turns out that the Barrytown motto is tranquil and alert. Oh. So we took a look at that and we thought, well this is an omen. You know, any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert deserves to have a meditation center in it. So here we are. This really conveys a lot of the spirit of, of the effort that we make. It's very relaxed, it's very tranquil really watching things, uncovering things as they actually are. It's not strident, it's not strained, and yet it's alert. We don't want to get so tranquil that we just sleep. We stay on the very forward edge of interest and watching and energy. So it's a balance. It's a balance that we continually work with in the course of this retreat. The cornerstone of the practice is a quality called mindfulness. This is what our effort is directed towards primarily, is concentration and mindfulness. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's the observing power, being able to see clearly what is happening without reacting to it. It means to be open, to be fully present, not only with the exciting and stimulating and desirable events and the moments that we have, but also with the difficult times and the painful times, and also with the very ordinary times, just a moment of seeing, a moment of hearing, means to connect to every moment, no matter what is happening and to be fully present To see quickly and to see deeply, to see directly what is going on, not through a veil of interpretation and judgment and past conditioning and habit, but to see right here and now what our experience is, to be fully connected to it. This is meditation, this is bhavana, to bring forth these strengths of concentration and mindfulness. And when we do that, the whole of nature gets revealed, our own nature, the laws of nature. We see for ourselves the truth of our lives. Simply by clearing away these veils of obscuration, we can see clearly. The practice is very pragmatic. It's not a theoretical exercise, and it's not an exercise in comparative religion. You do not need to believe anything that you hear during this retreat. This would be quite in accordance with what the Buddha himself actually taught. But what is important is to use the retreat environment as skillfully as possible so that you can see for yourself what seems to be true. It's a very pragmatic experience and of course this makes it more difficult for us. I think that in our culture because of the way we are trained we tend to feel that if we understand something intellectually we have mastered it. Whereas really the process of meditation is more of an intuitive opening. It's almost as though it happens on a cellular level. And we have to learn to be very simple to stay this pragmatic. It's said that whenever the Buddha taught, whenever he spoke, he spoke so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And perhaps as a consequence of this, It said that he had, in fact, many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. (laughs) So in a way, what we have to do is find that seven-year-old inside of ourselves who is eager and interested and will pay attention and will not complicate things unnecessarily. To stay very simple and to stay practical. When we turn on this light in the dark room, what we see is absolutely everything. We see everything that a human being is capable of seeing and feeling and knowing. I often think about it in terms of being like turning on a light in an old attic that maybe I haven't gone into in a long time. Turning on this light you see some really glorious treasures that maybe you didn't know you had, and it's really a gift to discover them. You see some dusty, neglected corners that you look at and you think, boy, I better clean those up. And you may see some objects, and it may be very startling. You may think, well, gee, I thought I got rid of those a long time ago. What are they doing here? We see absolutely everything. And so the retreat experience is not just one thing. There are many different kinds of experiences that come and go. And our effort is to be aware of them, not to judge them, not to try to manipulate, to understand that all of it in its way is right and natural. And we learn by paying attention to it, to be patient, to see everything, with right effort, with mindfulness and with concentration. If we can do this, then we can experience the retreat with a great deal of loving care for ourselves and compassion and willingness and humility. There are three basic parts to the day here One of them is a formal sitting meditation. The other is a formal walking meditation. And then there's the whole rest of the day, all of which is a part of the practice. Although it takes often several days to adjust to the quiet and to the slowness and to the simplicity it is these very things that actually intensify our experience. During this past summer, we've taught here a retreat for young adults, young people aged 11 through 18. And at the end of it, when this, this one 13 and a half year old went home and his mother said, well, how was it? He replied by saying, it was the best nothing I've ever done. (laughs) There's really a lot of doing nothing while you're here. Which means that we simply try to pay attention to whatever we're doing. We keep returning our attention to the present moment without contrivance. It's inevitable that it will wander away, that our minds are trained to be discursive and to wander. It will wander billions and billions of times. The practice happens in the moment when we can let go of whatever has taken us away, whatever has been distracting, and we can begin again. The heart of the practice is contained in being able to begin again to realize that we have lost touch with ourselves or with our experience, we've lost that connection, and it's been maybe some considerable period of time, but it doesn't matter. We realize that and we start again. Some of the things that sweep us away we find very fascinating, they're very creative, they're very insightful. And it's very tempting to want to analyze them, figure them out and dwell in them. There's no need for that. We learn to let go and begin again. Some of the things that come up are very difficult for us to face. And again, this is natural. It's not singular or unique. It's very tempting to judge and to feel guilty and to spend a lot of time feeling guilty Once again, we learn to let go and begin again. This is our practice, to get as close to our actual experience as possible in this very moment, and to know how to renew that connection whenever it becomes lost or broken. Joseph is now going to formally Begin the retreat by guiding us through the taking of the refuges and the precepts.
1: People have expressed their commitment to awakening through the taking of three refuges. That is, taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, and in the Sangha. Each of these has several meanings, they're each very rich in meaning. Taking refuge in the Buddha means to take refuge in that historical person who came to awakening and who so deeply understood the nature of the mind, what caused suffering, what led to freedom. Taking refuge in the Buddha also means taking refuge in our own potential for awakening. that awakening is not limited to certain beings and kept from others, but rather it is a potential of everyone's mind. To understand this and to actually take refuge in this understanding to begin the practice with a great deal of self-respect. Because we see that we are capable of waking up. This is taking refuge in the Buddha. Taking refuge in the Dhamma, the word Dhamma means truth, means law, it means reality. So when we take refuge in the Dhamma, what we are doing is expressing a willingness to surrender to the truth. But we're willing to put aside our preconceptions, our opinions, our views about things. There's a willingness to surrender to the truth in each moment. A willingness to see what is actually there. So this also becomes a very powerful expression of our commitment. Taking refuge in the Dhamma. Taking refuge in the Sangha. These, all these words are in Pali. Sangha means, again, several things. Most classically, it means the order of monks and nuns it means group of all beings who have attained some level of realization It's called the Arya Sangha and it also means all of us who are committed to this path of awakening one of the things that we grow to appreciate so much in this journey is the inestimable support that we give to one another. It's extremely difficult, this undertaking, this taming of the mind. And although we each must do it for ourselves, the support that we give to one another in this undertaking cannot be measured And I think you'll see during the course of the retreat just how helpful it is. This is taking refuge in the sangha. We take refuge in one another. I'll chant these refuges in Pali, just a couple of words at a time. You can chant them back. Namo tasa Bhagavato, Bhagavato Arahato sama Samputasa. sama Samputasa namotasa tasa Bhagavato Barahato. Arahato Barahato. Sama Samputasa Samma Sambuddhasa. Namo Tassa. <coughs> Namo Tassa. Bhagavato. Bhagavato. Arahato. Arahato. Samma Sambuddhasa.
0: Samma Sambuddhasa.
1: Buddhang Saranagachami.
0: Buddhang
1: dhamang sarana ngachami dhamang sarana ngachami sangang sarana ngachami sangang sarana
0: ngachami dutiyam
1: phe dutiyam phe buddha sangana ngachami
0: buddha sangana
1: tamam saranam gacchami tamam
0: saranam gacchami
1: sangam saranam gacchami
0: sangam saranam gacchami
1: tateyambi tateyambi gacchami gacchami Dhammang sarananga chami. Sangam sarananga chami. Sangam sarananga, sarananga,
0: sarananga chami.
1: I took refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and then for the second time and for the third time. We also take formally the five precepts Sharon talked about and to take the precept to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from any sexual activity for the period of the retreat, to refrain from lying or false speech, to refrain from taking any kinds of intoxicants, this is really the bedrock or the foundation of our practice. Again, I'll chant it in Pali a few words at a time, and you can repeat it. Panati Pata,
0: Pata
1: Vairamani, Sikapadam, 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 Sikapadam Samadhi Ami. Adinadana, Adinadana, Weiramani, Sikapadam, Sikapadam, Samariyami,
0: Samariyami,
1: Aprahmacharya, Weiramani, Weiramani, Sikapadam,
0: Sikapadam,
1: Samariyami,
0: Samariyami,
1: Musawada, Weiramani, Sikapadam, Sikapadam, Sura, Marya, Maja, Maja, Weiramani, Sikapadam, Sikapadam, Ida Me Silang
0: Ida Me Silang
1: Maga pala jnana sa. Maga pala jnana sa Pachayo Hachayo Hotu. Hotu Those were the five precepts mentioned and the last line said by virtue of these precepts or may these precepts be the cause and condition for the attainment of realization, the attainment of Nibbana. What we'd like to do now is a short sitting. If you want to stretch your legs for a moment, you'll be fine. We'll just go over the basic instructions this evening. Developing a strong mindfulness and observing power and a strong power of concentration. This primary object of attention is very simple. It's the feeling someplace in the body of the breath. Breath is a natural process. We don't have to do anything special to make it happen. So what we want to do is simply to sit in a straight, but relaxed way. Checking the posture a bit to see that we're sitting in such a way that our breathing process, the breath uh, remains open. If one is all bent over or the back is uh, bent too much, then the breath becomes constricted and it's more difficult. Just sit for a moment, feeling yourself sitting. Your arms can, your hands can be in your lap. They can be resting on your knees. Pay attention to the position of your hands and how it affects the openness of your chest. You really get a sense of posture. You get a sense of stability. Without forcing, without strain, Take a few deep breaths. Really let the breath fill the whole body. Really breathe in deeply. Feel the breath at the nose, at the chest, and the abdomen. Just really feel the breath through the body. Letting the eyes close gently, let the breath come to its own natural rhythm and simply feel it, feel it as it comes in, feel it as it goes out. There's no need to do anything special. Just feel one breath at a time. See how carefully you can be with it. Begin to explore where in the body you feel the breath most distinctly. Is it most clear at the nostrils? Or is it the movement of the chest? Or the movement of the abdomen, the rising and falling of the belly? Explore where it's most clear to you. And begin to focus the attention on feeling the breath at that place. As the mind begins to feel the breath at a particular place in the body, make a very soft mental note concurrently with each breath. If you're watching at the nostrils, you can make the mental note of in and out. If you're watching at the chest or abdomen, you can make the note rise and fall. Connect the note with the actual feeling of the breath. And keep the noting very soft, like a whisper in the mind. The mind wanders, and you become aware, simply begin again, come back to the breath, feeling just one breath at a time, very simply, closely. Keep the soft note concurrent with each breath.